Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? The 26th Annual Conference of the Parties is underway, and the stakes are high. As many have said, we are running out of time. We can and must ensure that the Glasgow COP represents the beginning of the end of climate change. On the line, the future of the planet, of course, but also the future of frayed relations with poorer nations already battered by climate change. Delivering on the $100 billion pledge is essential for keeping trust on all sides and trust being the well, most relevant currency during climate uh, negotiations. But while, while Paris was about promises, I think Glasgow six years later is also about trust and delivery. Can nation states, big and small, north and south, developed and not, trust each other to work together to rein in and adapt to a warming planet? The answer in the past has been met with a resounding no, with commitments not met, targets not reached, and goodwill in short supply. And when the richest countries in the world had the chance to put their money where their mouths are, they failed again. An international promise to help finance lesser developed countries fight against climate change falls short by billions. That goal of uh, 100 billion was not met. And yes, I share that disappointment. We are not there. We will not be there in 2022. You know, what I would say is, yes, there, there certainly was disappointment. There probably still is some disappointment. This week, we look at climate diplomacy, international negotiations, who bears the brunt when they fail, and what can be done to restore trust and ensure success. The question then before us is no longer the nature of the challenge. The question is our capacity to meet it. For while the reality of climate change is not in doubt, I have to be honest, as the world watches us today, I think our ability to take collective action is in doubt right now, and it hangs in the balance. A newly minted U.S. President Barack Obama addressing delegates at climate talks in Copenhagen in 2009. Those talks were broadly seen as disappointing, messy, and lacking in binding agreements. But it is when developed countries first said they would deliver $100 billion to developing nations to tackle climate change. Forward six years, 2015. Canada and other wealthy nations again promised to commit the $100 billion by 2020 and continue to pay that each year through 2025. Just days ago, it was confirmed that promise has been broken. And with it, my next guest says, the trust of much of the global south. Salim al-Haq is the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development at the independent university in Bangladesh based in Dhaka. He advises 48 of the most vulnerable countries, including his own Bangladesh, and he's in Glasgow observing these climate talks for the 26th time in his career. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. You were in Copenhagen when that $100 billion figure was first set. Where did that number come from? 
I was indeed. I was there when actually it was announced by then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The number came out of thin air. It was not based on any kind of needs or requirements or calculations. It was just a nice round figure, which at that time sounded like a nice big round figure. It's still a round figure, but it's not a big round figure anymore. It's a small round figure now. Out of thin air, that's that's actually quite astounding. Is it? Is, so it's not even a fair estimate of the money that's needed? No, it never was. It was just a round figure, as I said. Sounded nice. So how much money is needed? Trillions, hundreds of trillions. So 100 billion is a very, very small amount. It isn't anywhere near adequate to deal with the problem. But it isn't about the money anymore. It's about the credibility of the people who promised the money. Those people have now shown that they do not have any credibility. So that means we can't treat their words on anything with any kind of credibility. And that really is what is the crux of the $100 billion non-payment. The estimate from the International Energy Agency was $4 trillion to get to net zero by 2050. Does that strike you as sufficient? Well, on the energy side, that may well be sufficient. But on the impact side, it's not going to be sufficient at all. Because what we are seeing right now, by the way, is the cost of inaction. There is a real cost to inaction. The people, more than 200 people who died in Germany and the cost of the floods in the 50 billion euros, you're just having a cyclone in Canada right now. You had a heat wave a little while ago. The costs of those are in the many billions. And people have lost their homes and their whole cities have had to relocate as climate migrants. That is the actual cost. The 100 billion is a trivial amount compared to what needs to be done. And we haven't been doing it. So the cost of inaction now is many, many, many orders of magnitude bigger than this totemic 100 billion. That's a 12-year-old figure. You just provided examples of, of things that are happening in developed countries. You advise many nations in the global south. What do you expect their position will be in Glasgow, given the fact that these OECD nations have once again failed to meet their commitments? Well, the vulnerable developing countries, including mine, Bangladesh, this is not new news to them. This is happening for the last 10 years. It just hasn't registered on the, uh, the global media. You haven't covered it, uh, or, nor your leaders given it much attention. Now that they are suffering the impacts of climate change, we call it loss and damage from climate change, which we were hoping to prevent, but we have failed to prevent. And it's happening in rich countries. That's why I use those as examples, because they resonate with your audience. Telling them about Bangladesh does not resonate with them, because we know that for a fact. Let's talk about the details of the money, um, not just how much, but what it is for. It, it's been geared toward mitigation, which is trying to reduce the amount of, of CO2 um, and global greenhouse gases in the air. Adaptation, which is trying to do things to try to deal with the fact that climate change is already happening. Now, those are the two things that have been focused on. Some of it has been distributed, isn't it? Yes, so you're quite right. There are two ways of tackling climate change. One is by reducing emissions that cause the problem. We call that mitigation. And one is to deal with the impacts, uh, which we call adaptation, to prepare yourself to make those impacts less harmful. Uh, the latter adaptation is relevant for the poorest, most vulnerable countries. And the former mitigation is important for the developing countries that are the big emitters like China, India, Brazil, South Africa, uh, tiny vulnerable countries are not big carbon emitters. So for them, mitigation isn't a priority. Adaptation is. Now, from the developing countries side, when the $100 billion was offered, 
we had asked for half of it to go for mitigation and half of it to go for adaptation. The adaptation half should go to the most vulnerable countries. That was the demand. There was an understanding uh, that that would be what happens. In practice, even though they didn't get to 100 billion, the latest figures for 2019 is they got to 79 billion, and that's their own estimate, not the estimate that has been challenged by independent observers. And 80% of that they gave for mitigation and only 20% of that they gave for adaptation. Now, there's a reason for that. The reason is that mitigation money generally goes to projects and programs for renewable energy, like solar or wind, uh, which generate an income. They sell energy to people and people pay for that energy and they can pay back loans. Adaptation cannot take loans. Poor people who are adapting to floods are not going to generate an income to help them uh, cope with the flood. It's not only not likely that they can do it, it's also morally wrong to ask them. It has to be in the form of grants, which is why they don't like giving it and why they ended up giving only 20% of the money for adaptation and they gave 80% in the form of loans for mitigation. But why shouldn't countries expect the monies to be paid back and the loans to be invested and get a return on them? What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that for mitigation. It is absolutely wrong when it comes to adaptation. In the case of adaptation, you are the polluters. You are causing damage and harm to people, and you need to be providing them with some kind of compensation. The paradigm of providing support for adaptation is not giving loans. It's about helping people deal with the impacts that they haven't caused. These are not natural events anymore. They're man-made events, and they're being exacerbated by the polluters, and you are the polluters. You brought up this third element now, and this is the, the idea of loss and damage, um, that which is something that, yes, you're right, people here in Canada certainly dealt with this past summer and, and this fall. Um, tell me about what loss and damage is and what the plan is for it. So loss and damage is when we've run out of uh, doing mitigation and adaptation effectively. And as it happens this year, 2021, is the year in which we cross that threshold. If you uh, had looked at the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report that was uh, published on the 9th of August this year, they, for the very first time in 30 years of producing these uh, reports every six, seven years, have said that they have unequivocal evidence of attributable impacts of climate change because of the fact that we have raised global temperature above one degree by our emissions of greenhouse gases. So there's a human footprint or fingerprint on impacts of climate change that we are seeing today, including what you're seeing in Canada right now. They're not caused by climate change, but they are made more intense and worse by climate change, and that's what causes the damage. And that's what we are facing right now. We call that in our climate change lexicon, we call it loss and damage from climate change. Incidentally, even the term loss and damage is a euphemism we have to use because we're not allowed to use what it really means, which is liability and compensation. Those are taboo words, by the way. Because those are are legal terms. Your governments don't allow us. Yeah, and your governments don't allow us to use them. So, so what is the plan then to deal with this, whether you call it loss and damage or, or compensation and liability? Well, we, are, we have foregone the right to call it liability and compensation, as I said. But what we are asking for is solidarity. I'll give you the two examples that happened just within the last uh, couple of months. We had floods in Germany that killed more than 200 Germans. It cost tens of billions of euros of damage. Uh, Hurricane Ida that hit the United States 
hit the coast of Louisiana and then traveled all the way up to New Jersey, New York, flooded the subways in New York, killed more than 50 people in New Jersey. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel visited the flood hit areas. President Joe Biden uh, visited the flood hit areas in New Jersey. They both ad admitted this was human-induced climate change, attributable to human-induced climate change. And then both of them forked out billions of euros and dollars to compensate their own citizens from that damage. Now, we have no problem with that. It's a good thing for them to have done. But you know, citizens in Bangladesh, in Malawi, in Kenya, in Tuvalu are also being damaged by climate change and suffering loss and damage. Do they not have one dollar or one euro to give to those people at all? In the negotiations, they're saying no, zero. We're not going to give you a dime. Not a cent. Not a cent. What's your reaction to that position? It makes my blood boil that they can get away with that. You know, they're polluters. They're causing harm and they're saying, F you. It's hard to miss how much bitterness there is in your voice. I'm wondering how you keep going with this in spite of that. Well, I, I tell you, I've given up on the leaders. You know, I'm in Glasgow for the 26th COP of all the COPs, uh, but I don't have faith in the leaders doing the right thing. But there's going to be a hell of a lot more going on in Glasgow than just inside the blue zone of the UN. We will be here in Glasgow, many, many thousands of people doing things, meeting each other, talking to each other. And that really is where the hope lies, and particularly the younger generation. So and when I'll be joining them, they'll be demonstrating on Friday. Greta's coming as well. We'll, we'll join her in her march and show the world that things can be done. Young people can make them happen and young people can change the world. Old, old leaders I, I have no faith in. Salim Al-Haq, thank you so much. Thank you. So often when people talk about tackling climate change, they're talking about cutting emissions. But today we're talking money. Months ago, Canada and Germany took on the challenge of hunting down the millions that were missing from the $100 billion pledge. And they forecast the pledge will be met by 2023. Canada, for its part, has doubled its own contribution to $5.3 billion over five years. But Canada still spends a lot more subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Eddie Perez is the International Climate Diplomacy Manager at Climate Action Network. Hello. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. That $100 billion pledge fell short, according to Canada and Germany, at least partly because the private sector didn't do its part. In fact, they said the public sector is now promising to do more and they hope private businesses will do the same. I'm wondering what your response is to that. So in 2015, the developed nations like Canada and the United States agreed on a roadmap. And that roadmap, what they did was separated the pledge into three. The first third of that 100 billion was supposed to come from public sources. The other third of that 100 billion was supposed to be mobilized by multilateral development banks like the World Bank and uh, the Asian Development Bank, etc., and then the third was supposed to be mobilization from private sources where the origin of that mobilization was public intervention. So what that means is for each dollar that the Canadian government was given to climate action globally, there needed to be some kind of 
private mobilization moving forward. But that never actually happened. It didn't happen when they produced the roadmap in 2016. And in 2019, the private mobilization was about one third of what they promised. So I think that part of the argument coming from Minister Wilkinson and State Secretary Flashberg is a bit weak because, you know, they can't blame the private sector for mobilizing the 100 billion when actually the 100 billion should have been all public contributions and the private mobilizations should go beyond those uh, public contributions. But when you look at the pledge from Canada, 5.3 billion over five years, what jumps out at you? Well, I think the doubling was a very welcome response in Canada because it did help actually send a message that climate finance was a priority for the Canadian government as a foreign policy issue that could help Canada be seen as a partner to the global fight against climate change. But I think we need to remind ourselves that Canada's pledge is really far from our capacity to finance global climate action. When we calculate how much Canada would be able to do, you know, based on our gross national income, we should have been, you know, at some point, something like 4% of the 100 billion, which is about $4 billion a year uh, in mobilizations to climate finance. If we start to calculate how much funding should come from Canada based on some kind of effort sharing between these uh, rich contributor nations, the 23 countries that give uh, funding for climate finance, Canada's portion is about 4% of that $100 billion. Uh, in contrast, the U.S. portion is about 40% of the $100 billion. None of these two countries are actually providing their, their fair share, but there are countries who are. Germany is one of them. They are really one of the highest contributors to climate finance resources, and there are others who are doing so. So, you know, Canada's pledge is welcome, but it does not represent our fair contribution to the $100 billion. You, you know, you've been using that word fair and fairness in your answer. Can you explain the phrase climate finance, what it is, and why it is supposed to be rooted in fairness? Climate finance, it relates to investments that are meant for adaptation and mitigation projects all over the world. In the context of the COP, it really looks to the resources that rich nations have agreed under the UNFCCC, under the convention, to provide to uh, developing countries and those countries who are least responsible uh, for the climate crisis um, in, in terms of their support so that these countries could implement adaptation and mitigation projects. Why do I use the word fair? Because climate finance is not a gift. It's not based on good faith or in generosity. You know, some countries have a higher responsibility than others. And that is where the word fair comes. You know, how fair should Canada's contribution to the global climate crisis should be? And that is where we start applying this word to the climate finance issue. How, how does the money that Canada has pledged compare to the amount of money the government puts into fossil fuel production, either through through subsidies or in other ways? So, I mean, I think I would say two things about that. We um, 
when when we look at the amount of money that Canada is channeling to the expansion of the fossil fuel industry annually, we're talking about something like $12 billion annually. And, you know, these funds are actually being channeled through a Canadian Crown Corporation called Expert Development Canada. Expert Development Canada is also a Crown Corporation that is providing climate finance at the international level. And it's really ironic that Canada uses the same Crown Corporation to finance climate investments internationally, while at the same time, it is the one that is providing billions, disproportionate billions of dollars to uh, fossil fuels and the industry globally. And so, you know, clearly, when you compare the contribution of Canada to international public finance for fossil fuels and international public finance for climate action, the difference is astonishing. And, you know, it really shows is not only in Canada, but, you know, globally, that uh, these rich nations still don't have the priority, the priorities in the right place. And, you know, continue to say one thing from one side and funding the problem on the other side. Okay, given that, then how, how much credibility does Canada have at these negotiations? This is going to be an issue that uh, will test the cooperation of the COP26 outcome, and Canada has been invited to step up and to take a leadership role. But the international community is going to look at Canada uh, on two things. The first one is how willing they're able to get away from funding the problem at the international level and how much they're able to step up when it comes to channeling more climate finance and also climate finance where the needs are uh, you know, much more important, in particular for adaptation. So I, I would say that the fact that Canada increased its, its climate finance is a good thing. It's a good thing that helps Canada build credibility within the COP, but it's not enough. And if Canada wants to be seen as a credible partner for the Global South, they also need to start announcing that they're going to phase out international public finance for fossil fuels. Well, Stephen Gilbo is now the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and his predecessor, Jonathan Wilkinson, is now in charge of natural resources, and they're both attending COP26. What do you want to see from Canada in those talks? So what I want to see from Minister Gilbo is a new phase of a Canada that is ready to be constructive, that understands the climate emergency and that wants to build bridges with uh, developing countries and other nations around the world on the need to keep uh, 1.5 degrees within reach. And, you know, it's not just participating at the COP. It is also coming prepared to announce new pledges, new commitments, and a new sense of willingness to step up. I want Canada to acknowledge in Glasgow that current efforts are not adequate to respond to the climate crisis and to actually say that it will use all means and efforts. And I think I see that. I see a first step in this approach when we have both Minister Wilkinson and Minister Gilbo leading the, the energy file and the climate file, because it looks like Canada is ready to uh, put forward a whole of government approach 
but that needs to be translated into specific commitments. And it begins at COP26 when Canada will be asked, what is it that Canada is ready to do to step up to keep global warming, um, uh, to keep 1.5 within reach? That begins, of course, by setting up uh, a new climate targets, but that also means by unlocking more resources to help developing countries uh, contribute to keeping 1.5 within reach. Eddie Perez, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Now, Ottawa has cut eight out of nine tax breaks for the fossil fuel sector and is also undergoing a peer review with Argentina, but that work isn't yet complete. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So Canada and others are gathering around the negotiating table in Glasgow, including so-called small island nations. Those nations actually forced industrialized countries to include the 1.5 degree warming limit in the Paris Agreement. 1.5 to stay alive was their call. Belize Ambassador Janine Felsen is the lead negotiator on finance for the Alliance of Small Island States. She was there in Paris, and she's now in Glasgow to push wealthy countries to step up their support for islands already facing the impact of climate change. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what are your priorities for the negotiations in Glasgow? We're going into Glasgow with the expectation that countries, especially the major economies of the Group of 20, that they will ramp up their ambition. They will set out a clear plan of making sure their nationally determined contributions or their climate plans are going to be consistent with 1.5 degrees. That includes near-term targets in 2030 and as well the net zero commitments by 2050. These are milestones that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has already indicated are critical to keeping 1.5 within reach. And in addition to that, of course, we are going to demand that the developed countries who in 2009 committed to delivering $100 billion per annum by 2020 to support climate action in developing countries, we're going to demand that they deliver on that goal. Only around 2% of the money developed countries are giving now goes to small island states. I'm wondering what the barriers are to getting more of that money. That's a really important issue for us. So in addition to ensuring that we scale up finance, and that's more of a collective scaling up, we also really need to focus on why small island developing states are not accessing the finance that's available right now. Currently, we have a very fragmented climate finance landscape, very fragmented, multiple funds with different criteria. And because we're small, we have limited resources. There are high transaction costs in engaging with all of these different funds 
to put forward projects, which are oftentimes rather small in scale comparative to other developing countries. So this has been a major stumbling block for small island developing states. The fragmented landscape, the difficult requirements to access the finance and our own limited resources in being able to address all the requirements that are needed. One of the things that, that has really come out with COVID-19 with most of our small island developing states depending on external markets for foreign exchange and um, income generation, we are now facing significant pressures on domestic resources, not only to respond to COVID, but also to deal with the climate impacts that we continue to see. But we're also straining to access grant-based financing to address the fiscal space that we require. So small island developing states tend to have very high debt to GDP ratios. So I only raise that because there are opportunities that small island developing states are exploring to see how they can not only deal with their debt constraints, not only deal with recovery from COVID-19, but also address uh, climate action, climate ambition. We don't have a need for ambition. Small island developing states are leaders in ambition. What we need is the finance and access to it very soon. The Alliance of Small Island States has also zeroed in on fossil fuel subsidies. What, what do you want to see happen on that front? So there are many different ways in which we need to um, address the 1.5 degree goal. And clearly, the International Energy Agency, the IPCC, and many others have zeroed in on the fact that we're not going to get there if we continue investing in fossil fuels, if we continue to put up coal plants to fuel our energy, because these are contributing directly to global greenhouse gas emissions and directly to the challenge we're facing with global warming and climate change. So the small island developing states have called for fossil fuel subsidies to end by 2023. And this is directed to the group of 20 countries. Let's put it this way. What is the point of putting trillions of dollars into an industry or sectors that are high polluting and putting, you know, 100 billion, if we reach that, towards climate finance and climate action in countries? What's the point? At that stage, we've completely diluted the impact that the climate finance would otherwise have had. So we need to directly address the issues of fossil fuel subsidies and investment in fossil fuels. Now, Canada's position on this, I'm not sure that, that you know, it has been that it needs to continue um, investing in and having a fossil fuel industry to help pay for the transition to clean energy and clean technologies. And I'm wondering what you think of that. So that, that is, of course, something that many countries, not just Canada, have uh, put forward, that there is going to be a need for transition. And I wish we could have had our own transition in small island developing states, where we would have had the time and the money to address the impacts of climate change. But we simply do not have time. Yes, there is going to be a transition, but that transition can't be delayed. We can't kick the can down the road any further. Island nations can offer the world some ideas on how to do things like maintain biodiversity or deal with a world that's heating up. I'm wondering what role 
conservation plays in negotiation? It's a very important part of the discussion now. We know that nature-based solutions can contribute over 30% towards our mitigation and adaptation goals. At least that's one of the estimates. So island countries have been uh, pioneering many different aspects of nature-based solutions. Belize, for instance, has been focused on protecting its forests. And now in our most recent climate plan, we're looking at our uh, mangroves and our coral reef. Um, We've also been using the concept of debt for climate swap to try to generate funding towards that. But before Belize, there was the Seychelles. The Seychelles um, was one of the first countries to launch a blue bond to generate finance towards a very ambitious marine conservation um, program to protect 30% of its territorial waters as a marine protected area. But even before Seychelles, you had Fiji. And Fiji was one of the first countries to launch a green bond. Um, And that was uh, aimed towards uh, not only building their resilience to climate change, but also to foster um, action towards achieving 100% renewables by 2030. But bringing that all together, we're using what we have, our natural assets, what has now been shown or proven to be able to serve as solutions to climate. um, And we're using that to bring forward ambitious action and show leadership and show how we can, in fact, incorporate something that's critical to all of us, nature, um, as part of the solution for climate change. One and a half degrees is now a number that a lot of people are familiar with, but what they may not know is how it came to be part of the climate change lexicon. But I wonder if you can pull back the curtain for us. How did island nations ensure it was actually included in the Paris Agreement? It was a long process. It started off even as far back as 2007 when we started looking at the science and what the thresholds could be for small island developing states and some of our critical ecosystems, including our coral reefs. Then by 2009, we had a major campaign. It was more of a lobbying campaign to get 1.5 within the consideration of the Copenhagen Conference. Many of your audience may know that Copenhagen did not go the way Everyone had anticipated we did not end up with a climate deal. We did end up with a accord that was finally endorsed in 2010. And 1.5 wasn't anchored in there, but it was contemplated. And then by 2015, we had ramped up enough diplomatic support for 1.5 to stay alive. And then there were multiple heads who came together and um, one, of course, being Tony de Broom from the Republic of Marshall Islands, who spearheaded and pushed very hard to get developed countries to come together on 1.5. So it's been a long process, and it's it's include persistence, persistence and solidarity. And eventually we ended up with 1.5 being a part of the Paris objectives in the Paris Agreement. And yet now countries aren't on track to meet the commitment to hold temperature rise to one and a half degrees. It is really worrisome. That is why many have called COP26 the last best chance to accelerate action towards 1.5. I would like to underscore that COP26 is not an end point. It is a stop in the road, an important one. But from there, we need to ensure that we continue to put pressure, we continue to build momentum towards 1.5.
And it's not just governments, it's business, it's people. I've certainly been inspired by all the young people who have come to the streets, who have gone online, who have sent me multiple declarations and statements saying that they want leadership and they're willing to show leadership. So let's think of COP26, yes, as an important political moment, but let's not think of it as the end point. Ambassador, good luck in all of the negotiations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for giving us a voice. As Janine Felsen negotiates for small island nations, some island residents on the ground face the reality of a warming climate. It's a lot to take in, a lot to face, and people also work hard to adapt to these changes. They hardly complain, but they they just try out their way to survive. My name is Claire Andrea, and I'm from Kiribati. Now that name, Kiribati, may sound familiar. It's one of the Pacific Island nations most at risk of sea level rise. Even at their highest points, not one of those 33 islands of Kiribati is safe. The peak is just a couple of meters above the ocean, like the low-lying suburbs south of Vancouver or Wolfville, Nova Scotia. When there's a high tide, this place full of water. The sea, which provides culture, food, and income to Kiribati, is also ravaging coastlines and homes. We have taken our relatives into our house because they, they're scared of the storm and their homes falling. People worry about the water they're drinking and whether it's threatening their health. Which you can't taste now that it's becoming salty. Claire works with the government on a desalination plant. She's also part of a climate action group that's planting mangroves, coral reefs, and fruit trees to help with food security. All of these projects need money, but she says ultimately it's about more than cash. It's about people. If they give us money just to keep us quiet, but not committing themselves to cut their emission, I think it's really a waste of time. For the heads of wealthy governments in Glasgow, Claire has a message from Kiribati. We know that you're also looking after your own people, but it's a mutual love and sacrifice that we all need to deal with this problem that's the world facing. That's it for us. Thanks to associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel, and engineer Matthias Wilson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.